Unique Features of the Gospels, Matthew. Why did God see fit to provide us with four accounts of the life and teaching of the Lord? Why not just write one gospel with all the information contained in it? God chose to use four different men to write a record of his son's life. Each record is divinely inspired, yet each was written by a different hand, with a different emphasis, and each shows a different view of the Lord. One writer, Brother Andrew E. Walker, describes it as follows. They are separate, yet together they present a complete view of our Lord. They are like four different strands, sometimes coming together, as in the feeding of the 5,000, and sometimes diverging, as each presents different events, or the same events, in a different order. What then does each gospel present of Christ? In the Old Testament, the cherubim are used as a symbol of God's manifestation, This would be a fitting concept to use when describing the one who manifested God perfectly. What would we see if we were looking at the cherubim? In Ezekiel 1, he describes the four faces of the cherubim. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. And so each gospel presents Christ with a different emphasis, and each show a different face of the cherubim. Matthew depicts Christ as the face of the lion. He writes the gospel of the king, showing Christ as the perfect king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. His pen shows a Davidic king in royal majesty who displays tender mercy. Mark shows Christ as the ox who came to serve. He writes the gospel of the servant, and as such depicts Christ from the standpoint of his loyal service, and dedicated sacrifice. Luke presents Christ as the perfect man. More than that, he shows Christ as the perfect priest, and so depicts Christ from the standpoint of his intercessory spirit and sympathetic care. Lastly, John writes the gospel of the Son of God, which corresponds to the face of the eagle, showing Christ as the perfect judge, who shows spiritual discernment and divine judgment. In the Old Testament, the cherubim were charged with guarding the glory of the Almighty God. Now, in the New Testament, we have the glory of God revealed to us in the Word made flesh. As we take a closer look at the Gospel of Matthew, we hope to better understand the purpose behind his writing, the picture of the Lord he wants us to see, the lessons he particularly wants to impress upon his readers, and in so doing, to grow in our appreciation and understanding of our Lord. A study into gospel origins must not be an academic exercise, but something that shows us a divine and living word that effectively works in the lives of disciples, changing their minds and hearts. As we read the gospels and our gaze is focused on Lord Jesus Christ, the four views of him present to us the complete picture of the glory of the Lord in the word of God guiding us to be transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit as Brother Andrew E. Walker says. Around the year AD 58, Matthew sat down to write his record of the events of our Lord's life. His purpose in writing was to convince the Jewish mind that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the long-awaited Messiah, the coming King of Israel. At the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, a question is posed by the wise men. Where is he that is born King of the Jews? This question is not fully answered, For us, until we stand at the foot of the cross and read the inscription above Jesus' head, this is the King of the Jews. 
Matthew, also called Levi by Mark and Luke, owned a Roman franchise which collected the customs duties. This would indicate that he was a literate and educated man. Jewish tax collectors often abused their position, overcharging their customers so that they could take a cut themselves. This and the fact that they worked for the Romans made them exceedingly unpopular with their fellow countrymen. The tax collectors were often wealthy. Luke recalls that when Matthew was called, he immediately left all, rose up and followed him, and made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. Having given up a very lucrative business to follow Christ, Matthew invited his friends to a feast to show why he was giving up everything. Now step back almost 2,000 years in time to about the year AD 50 and imagine you're a Jew in Israel. You've been raised with a very heavy focus on the law and the prophets and have been waiting in expectation for the Messiah. The prophecy of Daniel 9 indicates the timing must be soon. About 20 years earlier, the nation was in turmoil over a man named Jesus of Nazareth, who some claimed to be the Messiah. Yet the Messiah was to come from Bethlehem. He was to be in the line of King David, and surely, when he came, he would rid the land of the Romans. However, this man had a radically different approach to the rulers. In fact, did he even keep the law? He had been hated by the spiritual leaders of the nation, and eventually, at their request, crucified by the Romans. Matthew sits down to pen his gospel, writing to answer the questions that would have gone through the Jewish mind, trying to grapple with preconceived ideas of the Messiah and reconcile them with the man from Nazareth. Matthew commences his gospel with the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, thus establishing Christ as being in the royal line of David and a descendant of the great patriarch. Two very important qualifications to the Jewish mind. The genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 establishes that if there had been a king in Israel, Jesus, as the adopted son of Joseph, would have been in the direct line of the throne. Matthew's portrait of the king is seen in the following ways. His opening verse is an allusion back to Genesis 5 verse 1, which commences with the book of the generation of Adam. Adam was the firstborn son. He had the right of rulership and dominion, but he lost it. Now Matthew presents the book of the generation of the one who would succeed where Adam had failed. All the parables exclusive to Matthew deal with the king and his kingdom. There is a total of 11 parables which are unique to this gospel. Five of those are found in chapter 13 and relate to the kingdom of heaven. This is explored in further detail later. Five of the other six commence with the same phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. Mark often records the emotions of Christ, emphasising the Lord as a man who did grow weary and did feel emotion. In contrast, Matthew, recording the same events, removes Christ's emotions and seems to focus on the divine side of Christ, just as a king might be portrayed. The theme of worship emerges strongly in Matthew, which is what we would expect for a king. However, Matthew is not just describing an ordinary king. It is the mark of a great king to show mercy to those who are least able to plead their cause. This could not be more evidently demonstrated than in David's greater son. In Matthew, more than any other gospel, Christ is called the son of David. On two separate occasions, he was recognised by blind men as David's son. 
two multitudes addressed him in the same manner, and in the regions of Syrophoenicia, the same quality defined him. Matthew records a discussion with the Pharisees about the fact that the Messiah would be the son of David. In this discussion, Christ masterfully goes on to show that Messiah must be more than just David's son. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. The Lord's argument here is that if the scribes say that the Messiah is only the son of David, then why, in Psalm 110, does David call him my Lord? It was not the done thing for the son to be greater than the father. So the implication here is that the Messiah must have a superior lineage to David, for David to refer to him as my Lord. This phrase, the son of David, occurs nine times in reference to the Lord in Matthew and the expression is often connected with a plea for mercy, as David's reign was characterised by his royal mercy. This characteristic would have been developed in David as shepherd, caring for and protecting the weak. This theme of shepherding also comes up throughout Matthew. Twice the Lord says that he is sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He had compassion on the multitude who were as sheep, having no shepherd. Twice he feeds a multitude in need, He portrays the judgment seat as a shepherd dividing the sheep from the goats. He refers to his death as the smiting of the shepherd. The Jewish expectation was for a warrior king, a son of David who would come and free them from Roman rule. But instead, God provided them with a shepherd, the son of David, who would save them from sin and death. Throughout Matthew, it is estimated that there are at least 128 allusions to the Old Testament writings. It is fitting that it is the first book of the New Testament, as it is the bridge which leads us out of the Old Testament and into the New. It is the gospel of the past fulfilled, showing Christ to be the realisation and embodiment of the institutions, types and prophecies of old. The term that it might be fulfilled, or its equivalent, is recorded 15 times throughout the book, the first occurrence being in chapter 1. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted, God with us. Matthew shows that Isaiah had prophesied the circumstances of the birth of Messiah so many years before, and this criterion was met exactly, as recorded in the birth of Jesus. The authority of Matthew's words is based on the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. By using them this way, he establishes that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the long-awaited Messiah. Matthew's emphasis is on Jesus as teacher and lawgiver, one who surpassed even the great teacher and lawgiver of the Old Testament, Moses himself. The unique message Jesus brought, a message of moral and spiritual reform, was the natural consequence and fulfilment of everything that had gone before. Yet, Matthew also writes in condemnation of the Jews for their unfaithfulness and inconsistency to their religion. 
No other gospel so forcibly denounces the Pharisees for their hypocritical outlook and practices. While the Jews are called to see Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Messiah, the son of David, judgment is also pronounced on them for their failure to respond to him. <laughs>